Hello friends. This week I'm very happy to say that we are going to learn how to learn. Peter C. Brown is the co-author of Make It Stick. That book is about as seminal as you can get in the world of learning to learn. No matter what your area of pursuit in life, it's pretty likely that being able to expedite your capacity to intake information and then recall it at will is probably going to be pretty useful. And that doesn't matter if it's learning a new subject or learning a new physical skill, if it's knitting or archery or law, all of them require you to be able to remember and recall what it is that you're trying to learn. And Peter manages to lay out a really good framework for doing that today. In other news, the Modern Wisdom YouTube channel has now crossed a thousand subscribers and has nearly hit two million watch minutes, which is pretty crazy in the first two months of it being up. So if you haven't already, please head to YouTube, search Modern Wisdom Podcast and give it a subscribe. It would be a massive help. Also, if you haven't already, whatever platform you're on, whether it's TuneIn, FM, I'm not even sure if that's a podcast listening platform. We are everywhere. Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you're listening, please try and give us a five-star rating. I don't really know if it helps, but it strokes the ego a little bit. So do it if you can. But now we're going to learn how to learn. Peter Brown, bring it on. Mr. Peter Brown, welcome to Modern Wisdom. Thank you, Chris. It's great to be here. How are you today? I'm doing just dandy. <laughs> it's uh, middle of summer here in Minnesota. It's a nice time to be here. Lovely. I've recently uh, recently returned from the States and the uh, the weather was fantastic, but apparently I've missed the one warm week that we get in the UK as well while I was away. <laughs> so I should have doubled down, I should have doubled down and just stayed home. I guess. <laughs> I understand. So I, I want to get straight into it. Can you define to me what learning means? Yes. Uh, for me, I define learning as uh, picking up knowledge or skill uh, that resides in your memory and is available to you when you need it later to solve a problem or take advantage of an opportunity. Okay, that sounds like a very a very curated definition. Was that something that you came upon easily or is that something that you had to develop through a lot of um a lot of thinking, a lot of conceptual uh deconstruction? <laughs> no, I just made it up. But it's uh, because I made it up when I started working on writing the book Make It Stick because I felt that I owed the reader a definition of what we're talking about with learning, and I figured, well, I'll just try that and see if it holds up, and it held up fine. Was there a satisfactory definition in advance of that? No, I'm sorry, but I, I might have a problem with my headphones because that kind of comes on and off. Oh, okay. I'm not too sure what's going on there. That might be uh, that might be on my side. Okay, so uh, ask the question again. Was there an existing definition of learning that you were happy with or was that one that you just created did that need to be there as far as you were concerned 
I felt it needed. I felt we needed. We owed the reader a definition of writing a book about learning. We owed the reader a definition of what learning is, and uh, so I sort of thought about it a little bit, and I wrote that, and I thought we'll start with that and see if it holds up as we go through the book, and and it held up fine. Some people in science, the sciences refer to learning as um, three things. Uh, one being um, in, uh, encoding, which is when you first encounter material and it's it's uh, encoded as traces in the hippocampus. Consolidation, this is the process by which it moves, it migrates over hours or days into other parts of the brain where long-term memories are stored and retrieval, being able to recall it again later. So the scientists think of it as that's learning for them. Uh, for me, it's uh, you, you, you learn it and you remember it. And you can recall it when you need it. I understand. So can you give us a little bit of background to the book, Make It Stick, and why you were compelled to write that? Yeah, sure. Um, uh, I've been retired for some years. Uh, I made my living as a a marketing and planning consultant to corporations here in Minnesota. And I had turned to writing books, and I was between book projects, and I was sitting down with my brother-in-law, uh, Henry Rodiger. Uh, Henry Rodiger, who goes by Roddy, is uh, uh, internationally preeminent in the field of memory and learning. He's a cognitive psychologist. And he was telling me that he was just coming to the end of a 10 year uh, study of uh, what strategies uh, lead to better retention of the new material. And he had a team of uh, cognitive psychologists at 11 different universities uh, doing this work with their uh, their doctoral students and postdocs. And over a decade of such studies, they were coming to some findings that were counterintuitive. And he said, uh, we've been trying to figure out how to get this out to a broader general audience and maybe we should collaborate on a book. So that's how I got into it. I'm not a scientist, uh, but I was very taken by what they were finding. So uh, Roddy Henry Rodiger and uh, one of his colleagues, Mark McDaniel, uh, who is also a cognitive psychologist, they're both at Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri. Uh, The two of them and I collaborated on this book. Okay. So I guess you've got the... um You've got the cognitive firepower in there on those guys' sides, you know, 10 years and 11 uh, facilities that have been used for that particular study. It's not as if you're, uh, it's not as if you're short of, of research on that side. <laughs> no, and the book is based on, on decades of research and reaches far beyond the work of that team. Uh, but you're right, it's, uh, it's firmly grounded in the, empirical evidence, but I tried to write a book that was highly anecdotal and engaging to read so that people would stick with it and we could um, tell stories that illustrated what the science shows about how learning works. So that gave it a different kind of twist than the than the typical scientific uh, study uh, publication. Yeah, for sure. I think in order to get the wider population to be able to buy into books like these you need to bring it back down to earth. There needs to be some tacit examples and some things that people can relate to everyday life, talking about standard deviations away from the norm and, you know, statistical modeling. <laughs> right. it, it, Whatever it that means, right? <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it, doesn't light, it doesn't light anyone's eyes. Well, it, it'll light some people's <laughs> eyes up. Perhaps your two co-authors would, be, uh, would, get, would get turned on by that. But I guess for the, 
for the normal reader, that's not going to be uh, that's not exactly going to light light the the fire in their no. belly, so to speak. It wouldn't keep me up at night. It put no. me right to sleep. So. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Agreed. Agreed. So you've got the existing research there. Did you think that writing a book on the science of learning was um, was important to to publish to the sort of wider wider audience? Well, I thought so, and they did too. And I think the reason it it struck home with me is because uh, well, I have a a bachelor's degree uh, from a college. I'm not a. Uh, I don't have a graduate degree. You know, higher uh, training. I've always been someone who's taken an interest in things and then gone about uh, learning about them and figuring them out. And what the, their research showed is that uh, the way a lot of people, particularly students, go about learning is by review and rereading and trying to push stuff into their brain. Uh, but what is far more effective is trying to get it out of the brain. It's the tinkering, the trial and error, the experimentation, uh, the learning from the turns and setbacks that you get. And uh, I just felt uh, very much personally affirmed by what the research showed, and I thought I would really enjoy uh, getting my hands on this And uh, because I felt it was very important, but I also felt uh, it was really interesting. Well, it's superbly fundamental, isn't it, that no matter what discipline it is that you're studying in, that the science of learning to learn is foundationally ahead of all of the things, ahead of everything that you're trying to do. You need to be able to know how to learn because it's, it's universal, right? It's ubiquitous. It is, and uh, from the moment we leave the womb, uh, children are experimenting, touching, tasting, trying things. And uh, when we get older, uh, we lose some of that. And uh, I think the traditions of our schools are such that uh, learning involves an expert who imparts knowledge to students. And in fact, um, it doesn't really – it's not really very effective. Uh, I think athletes know this when they go out on the field uh, and they have a coach. And the athlete knows that she or he has to figure this out and the coach can give feedback and they could work at it. Uh, but I'll, I'll, most students, including athletes who walk into a classroom, expect the learning to be imparted to them. And, it, and learning is not imparted. Learning is something that's – really acquired unless you know in an extraordinary circumstances where you you have some tremendously uh, uh, significant emotionally significant event happen then yeah. yeah you will remember that but the kinds of things that we're trying to uh, build in the way of mental understanding mental models and mastery you have to acquire that's interesting so did you have a look at um, or can you give us some of the typical approaches of an unlearned learner as as I'm going to call call someone someone who's unenlightened as to perhaps what is what the research suggests did you have a look at what's the typical approach uh, well in surveying students college students um the, by far and away, the major study strategies are rereading material, underlining and highlighting and note taking that kind of thing um, but the science shows that uh, what's far more effective after you've uh, heard a lecture or read a passage is 
to turn aside and then give yourself a little quiz. What were the big ideas uh, in this material? Try to recall it and try to say to yourself, this relates to what I already know in the following ways. Or if I were to put this in my own words, here's how I would do it. It's engaging the mind in the material. Uh, so I, I, I summarize all of Make It Stick uh, with three ideas. The first one is the one I've just described. Learning happens when you uh, struggle to get the learning out and apply it, not when you continue to re-expose yourself to it. It's about getting it out. Um, the second big idea for me is we try to make learning simple for students, but uh, actually there are some kinds of difficulties that are desirable. Uh, an example of a couple. One would be when you practice uh, a, a motor skill like your golf putt or you practice uh, something you're learning uh, like solving the um, mathematical problems, uh, it's good to uh, practice a little and then space it out and come back to it at a later time when it's, it takes more effort to recall what was the formula and how to successfully apply it. And it, that kind of spaced practice feels like you're not getting it because it, your performance is rough. But the actual effort involved in recalling that new material from your long-term memory strengthens the connections to it, helps it reconsolidate, helps bring forward the most important points, and, uh, uh, and makes it easier to recall again later. So spacing out your practice uh, is better than practicing things in a massed fashion. That's a desirable difficulty. It doesn't okay. feel good. No, another it, definitely, it definitely doesn't. <laughs> no. Another desirable difficulty is mixing the practice of similar problem types. So if you're – let's take the math, the math example. If you're practicing learning how to find the volume of a cube and a wedge and a, uh, some other kind of – a series of different solids – the typical way that you would do that with a math book was you'd you'd look at eight different uh, wedges and you'd apply the formula eight times and then you'd move on and do these other different kinds of solids. And during practice, you do very well. You get in, in tests that you do about 90%. But if, in fact, once you've learned each of the formulas, your practice problems were in random sequence, you would only do about 50% right and you wouldn't feel – too good about that. But a week later, you will have remembered that same 50%. You would do extremely well on a test compared to the others who've gone from 90% down to 23% because they didn't mix it up. And when you get a, a test where it's mixed up, they can't remember which formula went with which problem. Yes. So this of notion of mixing your practice, which does not feel good, uh, is very powerful for uh, improving your ability to recognize the kind of problem you're facing and picking the kind of solution that's going to be correct. That's interesting. So there are other kinds of desirable difficulties. And, and uh, so the notion of if it's clear as a bell, I'll, I'm sure I'll remember it, you know, is not really true. Uh, if you have to reconcile different ideas between the lecture and the book chapter or what have you, uh, that mental effort is what's going to make it stick. That's interesting. So that's the second big idea, that some di some difficulties are desirable. Okay. And the third? Number three, the, number three is that our intuition leads us astray. 
So our intuition is when I reread it many times, I get very fluent in it. Uh, I'm on top of it. I can do that. I can do that and take a test the next morning. I pull an all-nighter and I can get a great grade on the test. It doesn't stick though. What happens if you're tested again a week later, you've lost about half of it. Um, our intuition says if we practice our 20-foot putt over and over again, we see improvement. And it's true, you do. But that improvement leans on short-term memory. It, it, the, the skills have not been consolidated in long-term memory. That takes overnight or it takes days. So you walk off the golf course thinking you've really done a service uh, to yourself on your 20-foot putt. But much better would be to do a few 20-foot putts and then do other strokes and then come back and mix it up. And it doesn't feel you don't see that same kind of improvement but your brain is getting better at judging distances and the motor skills required you know to to make a good stroke so our intuition leads us astray and it causes us to spend time in strategies that are not paying us back okay so i mean that's a to me conceptually makes sense but is quite a probably quite a big departure away from anecdotally what I would have thought good learning should be done. You know, the, the kind of um, the force it down your throat, so to speak. Approach. Sure. You know, the, mm-hmm. the, yep. the, the really drill it into you, stick to one task for a long time. I know if you, um, if you listen to the podcast that I did with uh, Dr. Ewan Lawson, we discuss in that about multitasking and the Pomodoro technique, deep work and trying to focus wholly on one task. It's not too far of a jump to think that instead of just focusing on revision, you should drill that down again to just focusing on one topic within your revision, right? And I think that that could quite erroneous, yeah. erroneously be one step too far in terms of the... Um, how specific you're being with your revision with your revision time so let's go from the start can you explain how learning and memory or learning and recall relate to each other yeah sure well memory has uh, two components Uh, actually my co-author roddy rodiger uh is uh his field is memory and um uh, he's really uh, written the break, a lot of the breakthrough material on memory, including uh, discovering this whole field of false memory. But in any case, um, long-term memory is is in different parts of the brain than short-term memory. So when when we're talking about short-term memory or working memory, it's the list you go to the grocery store, you can maybe remember it long enough to pick up the things, and then maybe you might or might not remember you need to stop by the dry cleaner on the way home. <laughs> um, but that's gone. Is there a, uh, is there a time, is there a approximate time limit usually on that? 24 hours or? Not particularly, but I, I, I don't, I don't think so. I think it uh, depends on whether you're trying, if you're making an effort to remember it for longer. Yeah. For example, you're, you, re- you rent a bike and it's got a four-digit uh, combination lock and you're trying to remember those four digits. Well, mm-hmm. you can give yourself uh, a tool to do that. I was with a friend in, in um, 
Adelaide, um, Australia, and she said, I can't, I can't even remember my PIN number on my card. Mm-hmm. How am I going to do this with my bike? Well, what are the, what are the numbers? She said, it's 5268. And I said, well, break it into 52 and 68. What can you do with that? Oh, 52 is easy. That's the cards in a deck of cards. In 68, oh, the, um, that's the swirly girly, she said. So <laughs> she, she still remembers this four-digit number years later. So there are <laughs> devices you can use, you know. Uh, well, a piece I of information to keep to keep in your mind (laughs) yeah so uh but long-term memory is different from short-term memory and that is uh it needs to migrate to another part of the brain and be connected to the other things that you know so uh, the two aspects of long-term memory are one uh that it gets uh thoroughly embedded in the brain and connected to many different uh, points of knowledge if you can attach a a visual image like a set medical school student I was talking to who was trying to remember stuff, uh, medical stuff, and he said, I realized after uh, reading the research that if I paused and made a, a mental picture of the the organ I was reading about and uh, thought about its connections, that I could remember that whole thing better. Well, you get more different connections in the brain uh, which become roots to finding it again later and, and recalling it. So it's partly about having having it thoroughly embedded in your brain, and it's partly about having the cues you need to find it later when you want it. A lot of things that we've learned in life we can't recall because we've reassigned the cues to other things uh, in the meantime. In terms of uh, cues, what do you mean so, by cues? Well, what I mean, Chris, is when you come to L.A. Uh, and you rent a car, you have to create new cues to remember to stay on the right side of the road. Um, the cues, uh, if you are going to take your A-levels, for example, in psychology, uh, as uh, was the case of a psychology professor uh, at Oxford that we talked to, uh, he took his students, whose students were had mastered the content, but the pressure on the A-levels, you don't know which materials you're going to be asked to write, and then in mm-hmm. each of the ones you're asked to write, there's you know multiple paragraphs. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you know this better than I, but yes. so he took his students to um, uh, coffee shops, and he'd say, okay, um, and uh, imagine that you've, you're walking into the coffee shop, and you're going around the perimeter of the shop, and they will attach uh, meaning to the different parts of the furnishings or the layout that give them cues, uh, a name of something uh, that cue that next paragraph in their write-up. So when they learn uh, what the subject is they have to write about, they say, oh, okay, that was at the such-and-such such, you know, pastry shop, yep. and I was sitting there, and I can see I came in, oh, yeah, I called that fern, you know, something or other, and, they, and, and on they can go. They have the cues. So under pressure, when we tend to kind of freeze up and mm-hmm. being able to recall material, that's uh, a sort of mnemonic device. Yeah. Those are cues by which you can bring it up. It's the it's the beginning of the deck of cards that starts to tumble into the rest of the knowledge, right? Exactly. So I, I can certainly draw a parallel between that and my learning style. So to give you a little bit of um a little bit of context for myself, my learning style from probably my GCSEs, so fifteen and sixteen, was to write summarized notes and to then completely verbatim record in my mind what the notes were on the page. So I would know that top left, starting at the top, it was this particular bit, then this, then I could see when I got into the exam, I could actually 
feel in my mind where let's say that I'd written a, wor- a word incorrectly and I'd crossed it out. I'd be like, mm-hmm. okay, so it's three pages in. It's that, oh, there's that, there's the word that's not written correctly. <laughs> and those sort of cues. I'm aware that that, you know, had I have, had I have been able to read your book before I went to university, I'd have probably had, probably had a much easier time of it. But it was kind of, for me, I guess I was, I was, um, I was using recall, but that was blunt force, like just complete <laughs> yes, blunt it- force verbatim. Right. And that wasn't using the desirable difficulties um, spacing, and that also wasn't uh, using uh, point number three either. So you know, I think I'd maybe I'd maybe focused on the recall, and I was I discovered myself that using recall was a good way for me to at least. Well, it's it's pointless learning something if you then can't if you can't then pull it back out, as you say. You know, it's right. it's almost it, as if it you haven't learned either. it. Yeah. I, it is pointless, and so I, we had an email from someone recently who had read the book and said, "I'm, tr- you know, I, I've developed a new way of taking notes, uh, and I'd like to know what you think of it." He, he said, uh, "Instead of trying to capture everything that the uh, lecturer tells me, now, if I've read the material and I hear the lecture, I start have been writing questions in each area, so that when I go back to review my notes, I'm actually." requiring myself to recall from memory uh, and look up, if I can't recall it, what the material is. That's that's pretty kind of, you know, that's a clever way of doing it because that's what you're going to have to do at test time. And uh, and then the other issue about memorizing notes or memorizing a text is uh, temptation to memorize terms and uh, as opposed to concepts. So it's always important uh, when you've read something or taken the notes to be able to elaborate on them to explain why is this important? Uh, what would happen if this weren't true? Mm. Um, what, how does it relate to what I already know? I guess that's the, the, the difference between pure recall and comprehension there, right? Yes, and and which leads ultimately into conceptual learning, right? Okay, well, that's interesting. So I had a question that I wanted to ask, and we've led onto it pretty perfectly here. Is it possible to learn something but not remember it? Well, sure. There's all kinds of things we've learned that we don't that we can't recall. But um, functionally, does it I exist? Guess two if ways we can't thinking. recall it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a lot of stuff that you've learned that you can't recall until you get some kind of a, a clue. You see someone out of your past or you start talking to someone about past things and all these memories start flooding back. Or you catch a smell that's particular to a place you were when something happened and the memories start flooding back. So that's maybe a little different from what you're asking. No, you're asking, I, 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 you- think, I think that's right. I think, you, I think you're correct. You, what, you, what we've fallen back to here is the cues, right? Right. Exactly right. I, I had this problem in 1998. My wife and I spent a year in Italy, and uh, we'd go and take lessons on the language. And and uh, the only non-English language I had in me, and I didn't have much of it, was four years of French. And so uh, my brain kept presenting the French whenever I was trying to say something. In <laughs> Which English. is not going to go down very well with an Italian. Yeah. I didn't go down, but it, but it startled me. Well, I understood it better after I wrote this book that I'm I'm cueing, you know, a foreign word for whatever. And um, then I discovered after a year in the country and getting um, mildly 
able to get by with a language uh, that I could differentiate between the French and the Italian on on demand. But that was because I got more diverse cues, I suppose. Yes. Uh, that's 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 really interesting. So okay, we we've understood that recall. Would you? Is it fair to say that recall forms the foundation for learning, or that the ability oh, to? Yes. Okay. So without without the capacity for recall, the learning any learning that you build on top of that from comprehension to um, further what was what was the terminology that you used in Con- term- conceptual knowledge conceptual knowledge right okay um, so well, when in there, here's an interesting thing that um, let's take uh, or oh, you can take um, hitting a fastball uh, well you don't play baseball over there but take some kind of a soccer move or take uh you know driving a stick shift car you get into a car you're a brand new driver um you got to adjust the seat and adjust the mirror you got to look here and look there you got to push in the clutch and push in the the shifter and let out the clutch while you're putting on the gas a very complicated set of moves and look and steer out into the roadway and move along um well, you and I do that without any thought whatsoever. I mean, we're thinking about the luncheon we're about to yeah. to, to arrive at. <laughs> yeah. uh, so there's a lot of learning, in particular procedural learning, that um, the recall is that the procedural learning is kind of chunked. Like the, the scientists actually call it chunked in a part of the brain, and it's available to us just like that without having to think, now, how, what do I do with a shift lever? What do I do with my feet? It's there. And uh, when you get to people who are at a very high level in the sciences, for example, or any field, musicians, whatever, they have uh, spent enough time with the fundamentals of physics or energy and transfer or whatever those things are that they just invoke this law or that law subconsciously as they're looking at a situation so those of us who don't have that knowledge we have to think through every darn step we have to think through every part of that shifting and driving sequence but with practice especially if it's spaced out um it becomes second nature to us and then we possess it and then that becomes a, a mental model that we can build on in other and connected to other abilities or other bodies of knowledge. I understand. So time under tension there to a degree is uh, is going to be an important factor that trying, you know, cramming and, and rushing your learning together is not giving you enough time to allow that to settle and then to come back to it, right? Well, that's exactly right. So it isn't just spacing out the practice of something with intervals between so that you're a little rusty, so it's a little more difficult to do, and that difficulty actually strengthens the... Desirable difficulties again, right? Yeah, right. But it's also true that um, in a course, if you're, uh, let's say you're a professor in a course, it's better to uh, introduce a lot of the material earlier in the course and come back to it and distribute it over the period of the course because uh, when learning is distributed like that uh, it sticks better and it has more opportunities to connect with the other related material instead of doing it in blocked fashion or in a silo okay you know first we're going to do this then we're going to do that yeah so you kind of look you you take an overview of the entire map and then you begin to move through the map piece by piece right and so if you're managing your time 
I know I'm going to have a test next Thursday on such and such. Uh, you don't want to say Wednesday's my day. I'm dedicating to that. You're better off mm-hmm. dedicating some a little a little bit of time each day between now and then because that. Uh, distributing that out over time is going to help your brain do what it does well. Our, our brains are such that if we go to bed uh, uh, pondering a challenge or a problem, the brain we've discovered is working at that uh, through the night and it will um, throw out irrelevant stuff and try to connect this to other stuff. It's a remarkable thing. So you are kind of um, empowering your brain to take some responsibility for learning this material if you start it early and come back to it from time to time instead of trying to force it force it into your brain well i'm afraid uh, that uh, no. i'm afraid that eight, 18 years of full-time education led me to do everything last minute so i'm yeah. probably i'm probably patient zero for how bad you can be at cramming um but you know i i, I can I can certainly appreciate the times when I have spent a little bit more time over stuff and I have distributed it throughout my week or however it may be. I'm right in thinking, I read a I read a study recently that talked about the capacity for problem solving before and after a night's sleep versus if you had one five-hour chunk or two, two-and-a-half-hour chunks spread over two days. And the difference between the group that had the sleep in between and was their brains were allowed to reset and look at the problem with fresh eyes the uh, capacity for them to complete the problem was so much so much more impressive than the group that just had one one go at it for five hours which to a degree almost sounds counterintuitive because you think oh well i've got to get back into the same headspace and i've got to get myself up to speed again when i start yeah i've got to recall all this stuff that i did that i might have forgotten but yeah. it, it, almost slightly counterintuitively, it doesn't seem to be that way. It seems to be that, like you say, distributing it is... It, yeah. There's a really interesting study uh, of um, medical residents who are learning to reattach tiny vessels with a surgical stitch. And the way in this country they do that, they go away for a day, and there's four lessons. The first they get a video and then they're given a little bit of rubber tubing called a Penrose drain and they're shown how to pass their stitches through and tie surgical knots. And then they see a video and they're given some synthetic tissue and they practice that. Then they're seeing a video and they get given a turkey thigh. So there's four videos, four sessions, one day. At the end of the day, they are supposedly on top of this this uh, skill. Okay. So in, this, in the study, half the group did it that way. There were 38 of them. And the other half came in and did the first video in practice and they went away for a week and they came back the second week for the second video in practice and I'm thinking those those doctors are sitting there thinking well, let's see if I can remember what was that last yeah, week? Exactly. A whole week my life is busy you know and they struggled to kind of recall what it was and they had this next lesson and they went away for a week so it went like this four weeks uh, so they had the exact same training uh, but those whose learning was spaced out over four weeks uh, far out, uh, exceeded the others in all expert measures and they were then they had the surprise test they were given a, a rat that had a severed aorta and their challenge was to save the rat to reattach the aorta and uh, all of those whose learning was spaced out uh, succeeded and uh, a large percentage of those whose learning wasn't spaced out were not able to save the oh, rat un- unlucky if you're a rat Unlucky if you're a rat, unless you get with the right guy. Yeah. So I, want the, I want the dispersed guy. I want him. 
<laughs> but that's that's just a great example of the 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 simple power of uh, exposing your brain to something and working with it a little bit, and then going away and coming back later and making that effort to recall yeah. and then adding in. You know, okay. It, so we've got we've got recall. We understand the importance of that. Moving on to the second the second key concept that you had, which was uh, desirable difficulties. Um, and the spacing out effort. Can you explain how someone can apply that? How can you um, how can you force desirable difficulties into a studying practice? Well, let's take a subject. I mean, uh, you can you can uh, a study. Let's say there was a great study of of. Uh, well, I don't want to use. I'll use one uh, where people were identifying learning to identify birds and uh, so they had uh, I don't know four or five different families of birds and they were given exemplars uh, of each of the families so they'd be given a bunch of thrashers uh, to learn and then they'd be given a bunch of um, you know I'm not a bird guy maybe <laughs> raptors or yes, okay. whatever the different groups were okay yes. yeah and uh, and then um, and then they were challenged – they were shown a bird they hadn't studied and they were uh, challenged to identify which family it belonged to. And the interesting thing about birds is within these families, there's no single characteristic that is true of all birds within a family. So you're looking at a, com- a, a sort of a, a group of different kinds of characteristics that generally w- would come to define a uh, family. And okay. So those who who learned it in this way, looking at many types of one and many many examples of another and so forth, didn't learn them nearly as well as those who had the different exemplars shown them in random order. So this is a study. Uh, If you were studying, you'd study it in random order. And they learned far better. They learned they were better able to identify the unifying characteristics as well as the differentiating characteristics uh, of those birds. And in other kinds of, um, say, motor skills learning in the same um, way of mixing up the the particular problems that you're trying to do or the motor skills uh, movements, they become much better at transferring that skill to an unfamiliar situation. So if you're in a study situation where you've got a group of different types of problems that you're trying to master, uh, you can take it upon yourself, use flashcards uh, to uh, mix up your exposure. In a, in, a, in a randomized order. In a random way, right. Okay, that's interesting. So neurologically, there must be something going on within the brain that this particular um, mix-up of uh, recall of re- recall requirements that must mm. help to embed the learning somehow. Yes, so I'll say that one of the differences between cognitive psychology and neuroscience is that the cognitive psychologists do these empirical studies. If this happens, what is the result? Okay. And they learn from that. The neuroscientists then are saying, well, how does that work in the brain? What is going on in the brain? Yeah. And so those two fields are coming together, but there's a long way from uh, our really understanding exactly how this works. But I'll give you a, a, a very brief example. These were elementary school children who were tossing bean bags into baskets. Okay. And uh, 
12 weeks, every day at gym for 12 weeks. Oh one group. That is a boring <laughs> <Yeah>. 12 weeks. <laughs> okay. Kids. Well, they are pretty young kids. They like tossing the, the bean bags. Fair enough. They're so, easily, they're easily pleased. One group <laughs> tossed every time into a four foot basket. The other group tossed sometimes into three foot and sometimes into five foot, never into four foot. At the end of, 12 weeks, they're all tested on the four-foot basket. And those who were best able to hit the four-foot basket were the ones that had practiced on three feet and five feet, but never on the four feet. That's so interesting. And so the reason for that, the speculation, you know, what the scientists believe is the reason for that is that these four-foot, the three-foot and five-foot challenges required a variation in judging distance and the motor response to it and gave them a more complex the, – the really interesting thing for me was that they believed that this skill of the three- and five-foot tossers was encoded in a different part of the brain uh, where more complex motor skills are encoded than those who just repeated the four-foot toss over and over and over again. One was a little more robotic and didn't require the, yeah. the, the extra comprehension, right, the conceptualization. Yeah, right. That's really interesting. That's a fascinating study. So I, I think what you've done there is you've touched on what, um, again, it is a, that cognitive bias that we sometimes have to presume that because we're able to recall, you know, if we stick to one thing for a night and you're able to recall that one thing, you're like, yes, I've got some work done. It's planting a flag in the ground that, okay, I can remember this one thing. Whereas the desirable difficulty, which is potentially a better route to learning longer term, in the short term can actually make you feel like you're doing less work, right? Or like you're making less progress. So, like, oh, well, I can't really in full recall any of these individual parts, but across the whole, the amount that you've learned, in quotation marks, has increased. Is that fair to say? Yes, it is. I think it, you do, you are more easily discouraged when you do that. It's, there, um, I, I just must say, um, in any of these things that you're going to try to practice in a random order, you want to try. You know, you want to try your twenty foot putt a few times. You kind of get a sense of what you're trying to do. Or you want to find the volume of uh, of the spheroid a few different ones a few times so you get a sense of what that is and then the practice is mixed up so uh don't keep doing the single one until you've got it nailed so to speak mm -hmm. interrupt it interrupt it and move on to the others and come back to it later it, it won't feel as good but um just going back to my own personal experience uh struggling with the italian language uh, <laughs> uh we got over there the first of the year and by uh, the, the fall of that year, um, I was with some young Italians uh, we had befriended from the school, and we, and we were chatting uh, in Italian, and I heard myself uh, using idioms that I didn't know I knew, <laughs> and, and these had come to me through stopping. I rode my bike around a lot, and I'd stop at the town water pumps to get water, and I'd try to chat with the people who were hunting birds or whatever, you know. Yeah. And there was always a struggle and a frustration, but the brains probably for both probably then, for both parties uh, as well. Probably a frustration for them as well as for you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm sure of that. <laughs> Damned Americans. 
so you can't give too much weight to your frustration. You just need to kind of trust your brain that mm-hmm. your brain's working at making sense of it as long as y- you give it the challenge. Yeah. Okay. So I get that sort of touches on the th- one of the third main concepts, isn't it, as well, that to – you don't really know. I guess using your own judgment for how your learning is going, sometimes you kind of just need to stick to the program, right? Well, right. I, a really important thing that this, these cognitive psychologists uh, talk about is what they call it metacognition, which is thinking about your thinking. And that is we're easily duped into thinking we're, we're on top of something, that we've got it. And um, so what's important is to test yourself from time to time. Do you really have it? Can you really do it? Can you really explain this? And so self-testing has a couple of benefits. Uh, one is you learn whether your judgment of what you know and can do actually is accurate. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it and you, it helps you focus where you need to bring it up a little bit. But the other is the fact of recalling this stuff is a, a great way to strengthen your uh, retention of it, your mastery and retention of it. So as, as a study strategy, uh, self-quizzing is, a, is potent in several ways. There's a um and in a, fact go excuse on. me go on well I was just say when we're talking in schools with uh, professors and teachers um, one of the fundamental things that is highly effective is for uh, the, the instructor to incorporate frequent low stakes quizzing in the course low stakes so that people aren't freaked out by no, no pressure. Know, the, yeah, right. You just really dial, really dial down the pressure and have the the experience and ultimately the habit of recalling from memory what this stuff is. And, the, and the, if you can do that in a course where you're reaching back to earlier material as well as more recent stuff, that stuff gets brought forward and better connected. It's a very potent and not very difficult a strategy for helping students get to the middle and the end of their course on top of the material. That's interesting. There's a, a program that I know a lot of my friends who are doctors, uh, medical students use called Anki. I'm not sure. Yeah, if Anki's terrific. Yes. Yeah. So Anki's cue cards, right? Randomized cue cards, mostly with multiple choice questions. And would that fit into your model of consistent low level testing? Yes. Anki is great. Yeah. I wish, uh, I wish that I'd known about Anki while I was at, uh, while I was at university. I think it might've made my my last-minute procrastination tactics a little bit less, <laughs> a little bit less proliferant. Well, one of the nice things about Anki and some other uh, online stuff is that you can have it, you can set it up to, to uh, come to your phone periodically. Yeah, and, you, um, they get they get reminders. We'll be sat at dinner, and um, yeah. I'll, I'll look over to one of the guys, and they'll have his he'll have his Anki cue cards out because his reminders popped up. <laughs> well, if you were in our household, if you were doing anything other than practicing what he's supposed to learn, he'd get a steep scolding from my wife for having oh, his phone no. at the dinner. <laughs> oh, no. That's, a dis- no that's, that's, a, that's an undesirable difficulty right there. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we've got the capacity for recall, we've got the desirable difficulties, and we've got kind of trying to trying to ignore what your brain is telling you about how your learning is going. Yeah, I think it helps if uh, if you can think about stuff you've struggled with that you've had these kind of breakthrough moments. It might be, I think of 
of uh, people on uh, BMX stunt bikes. Mm -hmm. uh, I think of uh, people uh, doing video games, trying to find their way to the next level, trying this, trying that. Uh, you know, and, oh yeah, this is what I did last time that worked, kind of thing. Mm -hmm. All the different ways that we're not thinking of as academics, but in our lives, where we go through these kinds of spaced and episodic exposures to something we're trying to master. And then at some point, you realize it's coming to you. You know, you've kind of got it. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be the same with the semantic material in a, in a class or with the motor skills stuff uh, when you're trying to learn how to uh, stitch up a, a rat or uh, uh, trying to, uh, you know, uh, do a fire, one fire a bow or ice hockey. Yeah. Okay. Yep. I, understand, I understand on that. Um, did you, in the book, did you touch on anything to do with the focused and diffuse mode networks? Did you look at, did you look at that much at all? I don't think I've heard of that. What okay. Okay. So there was this two, um, so there's a, a course from Coursera, um, which is a, a massive open online course and it's called learning how to learn. And, uh, I yep. had, a, I had a little bit of a look through that before I, uh, before I knew we were going to have our podcast today. And with that, they, they're focusing a lot on the focused and diffuse mode networks. What they were talking about there was, it seems to me, the um, longer term, the ability to recall over time, and this, as you say, this more open mode of thinking, as opposed to a more procedural mode of thinking. That when you're learning something and you go away and then you come back, you often have a very open mind to what the what the solutions may be. We've discussed it previously. I've said I did a, a podcast on meditation not very long ago with Corey Allen, and one of the one of the things that I wish wouldn't happen, but I also appreciate does, is when I sit down to meditate and I, I quieten my thoughts. That's often when I have some of my best ideas of the day which is terrible because I'm trapped in this. I'm supposed to be trapped focusing on clearing my mind. And I've got all of these really good, like awesome ideas coming to me. And I think, Oh God, I just could, can you not happen when I'm not meditating? Can the meditating just be allowed to continue on its own? All right. Yeah. I've had that experience, but of course this is the brain, uh, offering you, uh, some ideas. And I, uh, if I understand the difference between the focus and diffused, I think one of the one of the astonishing things in writing is when your mind presents a metaphor uh, for something that helps make clear the, this other thing. You know, this notion of the similarities between things that your brain recognizes, and so. Uh, this is one of the things I believe from what I've read about sleep that uh, begins to happen when you uh, think about, struggle a little bit with uh, a problem or maybe a conceptual problem in the evening. And in the night, uh, the, the brain will uh, kind of look around and see what do I know that's similar to this? Are there models that are like this? Are there, is it like this other thing? And you can get some great breakthrough ideas that way. Mm -hmm. So maybe in, in, the, in the meditation where you're just giving your brain, you're trying to focus on the mantra, but you're also focusing on your breathing and, and your relaxation. And it's a very freeing thing. And if the brain uh, is presenting you with uh, images and ideas, uh, 
you know, I, I think I can only think that that's uh, constructive. You know, I agree. I couldn't agree more. I think one of the examples that was used was uh, Newton, and it was that he would sit in his chair with ball bearings in his hand, and he would wait. <laughs> he would wait until he just fell asleep, and the ball bearings would drop from his hand and crack on the floor, and it would wake him up. And that was the moment at which, for him, he often had a lot of breakthroughs. And you know, if it's hmm. if it's good enough for Newton, it's probably good enough for us. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it happens for me when I get when I get frustrated with my riding, and I get on the bike and I head up the hill, and I just smell the smells and look at the horizon, and I bike along, and all of a sudden, you know, my brain starts giving me ideas. I get this like aha moment. This is this is what what I could do about that problem, mm-hmm. and then I can come back and work on it. Do you think it's difficult to? as someone who is learning or trying to be productive or writing or whatever it might be, do you think it's difficult to learn when enough focused time is enough and it's time to move on to, or it's, it's time to take a, as you say, like a planned break to give yourself that room to breathe because you, you know, you need to spend some time under tension exposed to the material or exposed to the particular physical practice or whatever it might be. But then also you need this time away from it as well. Do you think it can be a, a, a difficult scheduling problem for people to know when enough is enough? Well, I'm sure it can be. I don't know. I don't know of uh, research into that question. My own human nature uh, it tells me you need to have. You need to mix it up. And you need to get out of your chair or get out and get some exercise and then come back to it. Um, but I don't. I'm not aware of research on it. One of the things that was a pleasant surprise for me when I was working on this book. I hadn't been aware of the search tool Google Scholar, where you can uh, search for published research. Uh, on a, you know, you could put in a term and see where research has been done and, and, and thumb through the different published uh, studies. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of useful. I suppose most everybody else knows about it, but I didn't, and I found it very helpful. Mm-hmm. But I, I, you know, to me, intuitively, yeah. But of course, I'm saying intuition leads us astray with learning. So, <laughs> <laughs> so you got to be careful on both sides of the um, fence, right? Yeah. Well, as one thing, you know, one of the things about being a non-scientist writing this book with two scientists was I was I tried to be I tried to take liberties in relating the science to uh, uh, stories of real people and incidents in their lives and so forth and, and drawing parallels, uh, but stay within the, the strict limits of uh, what the empirical research shows us and, wh- and where we're drifting into speculation to say this is speculation, but it might be because of such and such. I understand, so, yeah. So we've gone through the the three key concepts that you've got there: the capacity for recall, the desirable difficulties, and then ignoring the ignoring the cognitive biases to to one degree or another, or cutting yourself some slack if it feels difficult, thinking you're not getting it. Yeah, cut yourself some slack. You think you're not getting it, but you probably are. Yeah. Okay. Um. So, are there any other elements that you think that people need to be able to understand when it comes to learning? Is there anything that we haven't gone through yet? Well, there is this uh, theory of a growth mindset uh, that has been introduced uh, by a cognitive psychologist at Stanford University in California named Carol Dweck. Uh, And she's done some work that 
she, where she's studied with she she got she took an interest in why do some people become helpless when faced with a difficult problem, and um, so she did some work with some low performing uh, New York uh, middle school junior high school students, and uh, gave them a little seminar on how the brain works, and then half the students she took aside and talked about memory. The other half she took aside and said. A lot of people think that their abilities are set at birth by the gift of their genes. But in fact, when you work hard to learn something, you are building new connections in the brain. And over time, you're actually increasing your intellectual abilities through these uh, challenges, these mental challenges. She sent them all back into class. She didn't tell the teachers about these two different uh, subgroups. And the students uh, who had been taught that they have some influence over their intellectual abilities by picking tougher problems and persisting at them, mm-hmm. began outperforming the other students. And she, so Dr. Dweck developed this, this sort of um, duality of a fixed mindset versus a growth mindset. And the people with a fixed mindset tend not to pick problems they won't do well at because it'll uh, indict their sense of uh, their native ability. Whereas those who have a growth mindset, uh, when they encounter a difficult problem, try a little harder, try a different way, you know, carry on forward and do better. Now, um, so there's an issue here, I think, uh, when we're saying that some difficulties are desirable, that's not, doesn't sound like good news uh, <laughs> to students. <laughs> no, I mean, so, especially, uh, you know, a, a lot of students want the easiest path possible, right? Well, I mean, we all do. We're all... We, we all do. Yeah, yeah. We, all, we all want to get as much as possible for as little as possible, right? It's human nature. <laughs> I think we all agree on that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I think that there's more research that needs to be done about uh, whether uh, a, a belief in and an understanding of this ability to improve your brain uh, is actually a motivator for people. But the fact remains, nonetheless, that uh, when you learn new things, uh, especially uh, you you rise up the complexity of the topic you're dealing with, you are increasing your intellectual ability. And there's that many more things that you now have the ability to learn because you have places to attach them. You can't learn something new if you don't have something to attach it to that you already know. So uh, I think there's the field of motivation is one uh, where there's some interesting work being done. uh, And it's one that um, I think it helps for people to keep in mind that – you need to uh, you need to be a kind of a coach to your own brain, saying, "I know this doesn't feel too good, but <laughs> guess what? It's really going to pay off." <laughs> yeah, I totally get that. It's a, a weird a weird uh, analogy that I can draw between this and a recent podcast that I did with some CrossFit coaches from the UK, and in it, I was asking about mental toughness in sport, and I was talking uh-huh. to them about how they prepare for these competitions, and during these CrossFit competitions. A lot of the athletes are very, very heavily mediated by their capacity to suffer discomfort. And again, with that, it's a lot to do with mental state. So I was asking the guys, Uh you know, how do they prepare in an appropriate way? And what they said was, Uh how many events is it over a weekend? Is it seven events over a weekend? Okay, well, during your prep for it, do 20 do 20 events over a weekend. Oh. And then when you get there, you realize yeah. I've, I've prepared so much further above and beyond where I needed to, yeah. to bring it back to. Yeah. But you're right. The difference between an athlete that's doing that and typically 
how someone will be learning, even if they're being taught by a lecturer or a teacher or on a formal course at university uh-huh. or whatever it might be. The coach is mediating that impression of how the training is going, right? It's very rare. Mm-hmm. I don't think I ever once spoke to a lecturer at university or spoke to my tutor and said, my learning is going slowly. I just perceived that as a byproduct of, oh, well, like learning isn't easy and I need to just, uh-huh. you know, put, get my head in the book a little bit more until it sticks. And right. I think that the, the paradigm, um, the uh, environment that students exist in is very different to that typically of someone perhaps who's doing sport that, you know, your coach can see when you are and when you're not getting it. Whereas yes. there's a lot more, a lot more variables that can, well, does your lecturer think that your test scores um, during the build up to exams are low because you're not working hard enough? They don't really know. They don't see you practice. Do you know what I mean? And the practice is a lot less right. visual as well. It's a lot less easy for them to work out. So yeah, I think right. the, um, the concept of desirable difficulties is it's something that shy of, of definition as, as we've done today, it's probably going to be really hard for people to actually work out where it's right. Yes. I don't think it, it has to be real hard. Um, I have a couple thoughts. One is that we're encouraging teachers to help students construct their own understanding of the material as opposed to lecturing, here's what the material is and trying to impart uh, the lecturer's understanding. So that means the classrooms become much more involved in exercises that engage the students in working through and figuring stuff out. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's one thought. Um, no, I've lost the other one, so we might just have to go. <laughs> well, I think. You Where know, did you end up with your comment? Uh, you said uh, it was about it was about CrossFit, and it was about um, having a high level of difficulty than you need. So you, you, you oh, train hard, yeah. train hard, perform easy. Right. Yeah. I think. Uh, I don't know. It's gone. Sorry. Chris. That's okay. That's <laughs> It'll totally, come back. That's totally fine. We'll get it in a bit. Um, but no, I. I think you're totally right. I can definitely say, you know, I, I enjoyed my time at Newcastle University, but the course that I was doing quite often, we'd have 200 to 250 people in a lecture theatre. And that was for a lot of the, a lot of the modules that I took. And in terms of mm-hmm. yeah. comprehension and that two-way communication with the person who is disseminating the course information, it was non-existent. Like you can't, you can't ask questions right. of a room of 200 people. You can bet. I mean, they could barely, right. barely keep us, awake because it's such a big room yeah. and it's so unengaging and so on and so forth. Right. So yeah, the, the implications for teachers here are almost as wide as the implications are for students, right? Right. I think that's right. And I think that the revelation for the teacher is, it's really about learning. It's not about teaching. This is about learning. This is about how you can help students become the learners, not you be the teacher. And, uh, the, the, um, Oh, God, I had this other thought came and now it's gone back again. <laughs> totally it's just fun. making me, yeah, I don't know. It's all this, it's all yeah. this talk of, it's all this talk of recall. It's ruining your capacity for recall. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think my short term memory is not, it's not, it's my working memory. It's just a little fried right now. Uh, but, well, that's fine. That's, uh, that, that's totally fine. Maybe you should go away. Maybe you need to go away and come back to it. I'm not sure. Yeah. <laughs> um, Probably so, need to do that. I think, um, We've laid out some some quite nice concepts there. We've gone through what does learning mean? 
how do learning and memory relate? Um, what does recall mean? The desirable difficulties and, and giving yourself a little bit of a break and, and not, I, I think I, I like the, the, um, the third key concept that you've got there, because I think that's the one which will mediate all of the rest that if you don't believe that you're making progress, you're, you're going to fall back into the typical brute force one concept at a time approach. And I think right. that the all of the others are reliant on you having faith in the learning process working. Right. So I got my idea back. So there I, it is. I have, yeah. <laughs> so I have two thoughts. One, one is that um, often uh, an instructor, when an instructor is teaching you about a topic, uh, the information is arbitrary. The student doesn't know why it's important or what it connects to, and so forth. So it's really important for instructors to, when they lay out something new, say, uh, to explain, here's how this relates to where we've been and where we're going. Here's how it connects to what we already know. So that the students have a way of, of, of connecting to it and grabbing hold of it okay. and making sense of it. Now, the other side of that is, I think students have an opportunity, if they're not getting it, to to say to the instructor, I'm not getting it. I don't quite understand how this relates. Could you give me an example of how this is true elsewhere or in another topic or something to help me understand it? Okay. Uh, and then I can practice at, you know, building that learning. Um, a dialogue, I, th I think, is... Uh, we're just used to a kind of a, I'm the expert, you're the student, I'm going to tell you how it is, you're going to take notes, then we're going to have a test. Yeah, that's definitely my uh, functional uh, ex experience of learning. Yeah. That yeah. It is, it's very much a one-way street and that there will be, it almost felt sometimes like lecturers knew that they had to ask a particular number of questions and that that was just a hurdle they had to overcome the same right. as saying the next slide. It wasn't something which was being done to actually embed the learning. Right. Yeah, which I right. think I think that's really interesting. The, the implications for, for teachers and lecturers. I mean, you know, in, in an ideal world, every university course would probably start with two weeks on learning how to learn, right? And then I, I think every incoming student at a university should have a, a course in that, uh, how learning works and uh, how to manage your time and... You know, I, I was in uh, at, uh, Florida International University in Miami, uh, where they read "Make a Stick" and sat down at the law school, and they've completely restructured the, their orientation and their management of students through the two-year law school. And they've, uh, around these principles, they've gone from typically fourth or fifth place in the bar exam in Florida as a school to. Uh, placing first place five out of the last six exams. Oh but it's by this conscious effort is when the students come in, let's talk about these principles and how they work and having experience with it. Uh, well, I just was having correspondence with someone in Ecuador who was saying I would like to have a simple classroom experience. And uh, my co-author, Mark McDaniel, said, well, they were, they were learning vocabulary. He said, well, here's what you could do. You could give them uh, half the vocabulary in a sheet to memorize, and you could give them the other half of the vocabulary in flashcards to learn, and then have a test and see for themselves which ones they learn better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I and, think then, and they'll, you know. I think that getting students to buy into the process is is super, super important. That you're right, the, the, there's more difficulty going to be through this particular style of learning. It's going to feel 
um, less immediately gratifying, right? Because you can't straight away recall big chunks of concepts and you need to have faith. You need to trust the process. It's what we say about when, when we talk to powerlifting coaches and stuff like that and some of the athletes aren't happy with where their lifts are at and they don't feel right and they say, look, just tr- trust the process. Have, yes. faith, have faith in the fact that you have outsourced the specific task of programming what is to be done and when to someone who knows what they're talking about. Mm-hmm. And it is your job to do what they say, what they tell mm-hmm. you to do and mm-hmm. not vice versa. You shouldn't be questioning it. Obviously there needs to be a back and forth, as you've said, and you know, you need to at regular points reassess where your, um, where your learning is at and how your learning is progressing, but stick to the program, I think. Right. Not only stick to the program, but I think, have have two goals. One goal is to master the content or the skill, and the other is to learn how to be a, a, a superior learner so that when you get out of whatever this program is and you find something else you want to do, you know you have the habits that will make you highly effective at mastering that, and that will make you a competitor uh, out in this crazy world, uh, give you a great advantage. For sure. I mean, it's a principle that's completely, as we've said at the start, it's ubiquitous, right? If you yep. can, if you can learn well, then it's the the first domino has fallen on every yep. single everything, and that goes from yep. as you've you know you've used a, a wide range from physical pursuits to intellectual pursuits, yep. specialists. You know, it, mm-hmm. it, it's it's definitely definitely something very crucial. I think, you know, I I wish that I'd had a better comprehension of time management when I was at university and of how learning works and of the strategies that I could have implemented. I think had I have had that, it would have made my life a lot easier. I, by luck, managed to fall on at least one of the three key concepts that you have put in here. And I genuinely think that's probably the majority of what's carried me through, carried me through my university degree. So, you know, it's it's fortunate that I stumbled upon that kind of just through uh, trial and error. But if people can implement all of these, I think they'll they'll have a much easier and much uh, much more comprehensive learning experience. Well, I hope that some of your listeners uh, tumble to it and give it a shot. I'm sure that they will. So, can you make t- it stick? Make it stick, indeed. Can you tell the listeners where they can find you online? Uh, well, there's a website, makeitstick.com. All one word, make it stick. Yep. Uh, the book is Make It Stick: The Science of Successful Learning. is published by Harvard University Press. Uh, it's available uh, on Amazon. It's being translated into 14 different languages. So uh, if you have listeners who prefer to read it in a language other than English, uh, some of those are already out and others will be out soon. So some of your Italian friends can uh, can pick up on it. <laughs> <laughs> now I'm going to make them learn English. Yeah, that's it. That's it. Yeah, exactly. Of course, they already have it. But <laughs> that's, that's fantastic. Peter, I'll make sure that links to the book and to your website – will be in the show notes below. So if anyone does want to get hold of the book, I can highly recommend it and they can grab that through the show notes in the links. I'm sure that we're going to become inundated with some questions and stuff like that. So if we do have something, I'll fire them over to you and I'll be able to answer those on future episodes as well. But I really appreciate your time. Uh, I think I appreciate yours, Chris. It's really been fun chatting with you. It's been fantastic. I, I really do think that will have helped some people in reframe their... Uh, their approach to learning the it you, you, we keep coming back to it but i do think that you can't emphasize it enough that the capacity your understanding of how to learn 
is the fundamental case of what is going to restrict your ability to learn anything. Like it's, yeah. and I think it, uh, I think it's a really fundamental task. And hopefully, as well, over the coming years, as you say, universities and institutions have started to latch on to the idea that this is important. And right. you know, if you can continue singing that song, then maybe uh, maybe university won't be quite such a, a daunting and difficult task for some people in the future as well. I think the wind will be at your back if you do. That's the plan. Well, Peter, thank you very much again, and I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Chris. Cheers. Thank you very much. Bye-bye.